Good morning. Scott Luton here with you on this edition of This Week in Business History. Welcome to today's show. On this program, which is part of the Supply Chain Now family of programming, we take a look back at the upcoming week, and then we share some of the most relevant events and milestones from years past. Of course, mostly business-focused, with a little dab of global supply chain, and occasionally, we might just throw in a good story outside of our primary realm. So I invite you to join me on this look back in history to identify some of the most significant leaders, companies, innovations, and perhaps lessons learned in our collective business journey. Now, let's dive in to this week in business history. Hello, and thanks for joining us. I'm Kelly Barner, owner of Buyers Meeting Point and the host of Dial P for Procurement here on Supply Chain Now. You can join us on the third Tuesday of each month for a video live stream that runs from 12 to 1 p.m. Eastern as I bring together the leading minds in corporate spend management and do my best to blur the lines between procurement and supply chain. In this week's show, we'll be remembering a number of key stories, innovations, inventions, and firsts that took place over the years between July 19th and the 23rd. For our main story, I'd like to bring you one of my favorite kinds of business stories, a scandal. Don't you just love a good scandal? As long as you're not involved in it, of course. On July 21st, 2002, WorldCom filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy. It was one of the largest filings of the sort, and to this day, I believe it stands as the biggest accounting scandal in U.S. history. At the time of their downfall, WorldCom, led by CEO Bernie Ebers, was the second largest long-distance telephone service provider in the world. They had grown by acquisition, which is fine. The problem is that they weren't profitable. The dot-com bubble had just burst, and companies were slashing their spending on tech equipment and services. But old Bernie wasn't going to let a little business downturn prevent his company from looking good on the books. In order to hide the company's sliding profitability and protect their share price, the WorldCom accounting team, led by the CEO and CFO, was recording expenses as investments, categories of expenditure that are treated very differently from a tax perspective. In fact, they are handled so differently that the fraudulent approach they took turned a $395 million loss and turned it into a stated profit of $130 million. And that was just for the first quarter of 2001. Despite the fact that WorldCom had an external auditor, Arthur Anderson, you know, the same Arthur Anderson that was convicted of obstruction of justice for shredding documents related to its audit of Enron. As a matter of fact, records were later found that served as evidence that a number of WorldCom executives had actually reached out to Arthur Anderson as part of the auditing process to let them know that they believed the company was improperly accounting for expenses and in order to inflate their profits, which they apparently were. 
In this case, the fraud was uncovered internally by VP Cynthia Cooper, head of the company's internal audit team. In June of 2002, she discovered over $3.8 billion worth of fraudulent balance sheet entries. As the process wore on, WorldCom would eventually be forced to admit that it had overstated its assets by over $11 billion. In 2002, Cynthia Cooper's courage and determination earned her the title of Time Person of the Year, alongside Colleen Rowley and Sharon Watkins, both of whom were also being recognized as whistleblowers. But in order to really understand what Cynthia Cooper went through, we have to back up. First of all, try for just a moment to put yourself in her shoes. You work in internal audit. That's not exactly a glory hound function to work in. And I say that as someone who worked in procurement. You're reviewing the books and you find $3.8 billion worth of fraudulent balance sheet entries. Can you imagine how she must have felt in that moment? I'm sure, like most people, first she thought she had made a mistake. I never should have stopped for lunch. Clearly I lost my place with these numbers. But the more she checked, the more certain she became that something was not right. Cooper had heard from some of the members of her team that something funny was going on with the capital expenditures. As a team, they looked into it and found enough odd transactions to make them very suspicious. To make matters worse, when she raised the question with her boss, the CFO, Scott Sullivan, he said, paraphrasing, of course, let's not look at this anymore today. Why don't we just delay these internal audits until later? It was a good try, but it didn't work. Cooper pushed ahead with the investigation. When confronted with the mountain of evidence, the CFO attempted to make a case for the way that things had been handled, but no one was persuaded. When the board of directors called for Sullivan, the CFO's resignation, he refused, and so they fired him. In the end, Bernie Ebers was found guilty of fraud, conspiracy, and filing false documents with regulators, and was sentenced to 25 years in prison. Scott Sullivan was sentenced to five years because he pled guilty and testified against Bernie Ebers. WorldCom emerged from bankruptcy in 2003 as MCI, later to be acquired by Verizon. But tens of thousands of workers lost their jobs. Accounting scandals like we saw at WorldCom and Enron would eventually spur the passage of the Sarbanes-Oxley Act, legislation that helps protect investors from fraudulent financial reporting by corporations. And what happened to Cynthia Cooper? Well, she didn't stay at MCI, that's for sure. She started her own consulting firm, wrote a book about her experiences, and is now a well-known speaker on the topic of, what else? Corporate ethics. Looking a little bit further back in time, we arrive at July 20th, 1865, when, just three months after the end of the Civil War, Pierre Lallemand arrived in the U.S. from France with the plans and components for the first modern bicycle. His occupation was as a baby carriage builder, or, depending on where you were listening from, you might think of that as a pram or a stroller. 
While doing that job, he saw something called a dandy horse, a contraption that is a bit of a misnomer because it is neither dandy nor a horse. It is more like a bike with no pedals. The rider would just walk his way along with his feet on the ground. And I say his intentionally because no self-respecting lady in the late 19th century would be caught dead riding something so ridiculous in a long dress. In fact, one of Pierre's objectives in inventing the bicycle we know today was to offer people something more dignified to get around on. Although in 1866, he was granted the first US patent for a pedaled bicycle, he never made any money off the invention. He didn't raise enough money to open a factory, and so he sold the rights to his patent and moved back to France. In 1876, the patent ended up in the hands of Albert Pope, the manufacturer of the Columbia bicycle and the largest employer in New England at the time, based on the workforce at his factory in Connecticut. Poor Bierre died in Boston in obscurity in 1891, but there are still some fun takeaways from his story. The early bicycles were called bone shakers because they had no shocks to speak of. Do you know what else they didn't have? Brakes. You had to be wild and crazy to get on a bicycle back then, but plenty of people did it. We actually have a tale in Pierre's own words about what it was like to ride on one of his bikes. This is from the book titled The Mechanical Horse by Margaret Gurroff. That fall, Lallemont conducted a road test of about four and a half miles, pedaling the velocipede mostly uphill to a nearby village of Birmingham, now part of Derby, and then doubling back home to Ansonia. As he told a journalist 20 years later, his delight during one bumpy downhill stretch turned to panic when he realized that his brakeless vehicle was about to rear-end a horse-drawn wagon. He yelled a warning to the two men in the wagon then veered and tumbled into a roadside culvert filled with water, cracking his head in the process. The terrified men, meanwhile, whipped their horses into a run and took off. Lallemont collected himself and rode to Ansonia's Main Street, where, drenched and bleeding, he stopped in a tavern. There he found the two men, the journalist wrote, relating between drinks how they had seen the dark devil with human head and body half like a snake and half like a bird, just hovering above the ground, which he seemed no way to touch, chase them down the hill. Lallemont approached the man and in his thick French accent exclaimed, I was the devil. Good for you, Pierre. Way to be dignified. Our next business history milestone has a tie-in to one of the other Supply Chain Now podcasts. On July 21, 1930, the U.S. Veterans Administration was formed. While veterans had been receiving benefits from the federal government since the Revolutionary War, 1930 was the first time an official agency was dedicated to their needs. At the time, veteran services were being performed by three government agencies, the Veterans Bureau, the Bureau of Pensions, and the National Home for Disabled Volunteer Soldiers. On July 21st, Congress authorized President Herbert Hoover to combine the three agencies into one overarching administration. There wouldn't be another significant change for over 50 years. In 1988, President Ronald Reagan signed the Department of Veterans Affairs Act, which elevated the agency to a cabinet-level position, 
but it wouldn't take into effect until after he left office. Today, the Department of Veterans Affairs, referred to more commonly as the VA, serves just under 20 million veterans at about 2,000 sites across the U.S. If you would like to hear the stories of some of those veterans, as well as the groups, organizations, and families that support them, I definitely recommend listening to the Veteran Voices podcast here on Supply Chain Now. Last but not least, let's mark a few business birthdays. On July 19, 1953, Howard Schultz was born. He would go on to become the chairman and CEO of Starbucks, an owner of the Seattle Supersonics, and a member of the board of directors of Square Inc. On July 20th, 1850, John Graves Shedd was born on a New Hampshire farm, but he would rise to prominence in Chicago as the second president and chair of the board of Marshall Field and Company, the largest store in Chicago and the largest wholesale and dry goods company in the world at the time. And on July 21st, 1911, Marshall McLuhan was born in Edmonton, Alberta. He was a Canadian philosopher known for stating, the medium is the message when it came to modern mass communication. He had a theory that divided out the attention-getting part of a message from the deeper meaning that the author wanted to communicate. As many of us now spend our days realizing, getting people's attention and also helping them realize what we want to say are two very different tasks. Achieving both at the same time these days is practically a miracle. Well, that wraps up this edition of This Week in Business History. Thank you so much for tuning into the show each week. Don't forget to check out the wide variety of industry thought leadership available at supplychainnow.com. As a friendly reminder, you can find This Week in Business History wherever you get your podcasts from, and be sure to tell us what you think. We would love to earn your review, and we encourage you to subscribe so that you never miss an episode. On behalf of the entire team here at This Week in Business History and Supply Chain Now, this is Kelly Barner wishing all of our listeners nothing but the best. On that note, we'll see you next time here on This Week in Business History.